0: So sweet, we come to Matthew chapter 28. Wow, here we are. Final chapter. We're going to tackle off the rest of of this gospel. We started in December 2015, our journey through the gospel of Matthew. So I feel like we've really got something accomplished here this morning as uh, we wind her down here. But hey, let's let's read this chapter and then we'll just pray. All right? It says this in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we just uh, come before you this morning to sit at your feet, Jesus, to be taught of you, to be taught of your spirit. And Lord, we just uh, make that confession this morning uh, before you that, that your word is bread for us. It's life for us, Lord. You said, Jesus, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, this morning we come to hear your word, to be fed in our spirits, Lord, to be strengthened in the inner man, the inner person, Lord. And so, God, this morning um, we just pray your spirit's blessing upon the teaching of the word. Lord, we thank you for this journey that we've been through the gospel of Matthew, Lord. It's been sweet. We've learned much of you. And so, Lord, as as we wrap up, Matthew's gospel this morning. We just ask again for, for your spirit's blessing and power upon the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. So the final chapter, here we are. Final chapter of Matthew's gospel account of King Jesus. All throughout this gospel, one of the themes that is just overshadowed for us and that we've just uh, tried to draw upon all the way through is, is the, kings, the kingship of Jesus. That Jesus is king. And, you know, I I would say that if there's one thing that proves his kingship, it's his resurrection from the dead. And this final chapter of Matthew's gospel tells us about Jesus' victory over sin, his victory over death. But then it goes beyond to tell us about, as we're going to see this morning, about the absolute power and the absolute authority of King Jesus. The Apostle Paul kind of summed it up in his letter to the, the Philippians. I love that verse from sec, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10-11. It says this, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. I love that verse. And so as we... You know wrap Matthew up here. One of, one of the, the things that's interesting in particular about Matthew's account of the resurrection. Actually is the details that he leaves out. I mean Matthew tells us a relatively kind of short version of the resurrection story. And all that happened that day. I, I kind of like to you know at different times have taken the, the four gospels. And blended the accounts together. And get a sense of what all that transpired on that day that Jesus Was resurrected. That's a really valuable thing to do. To get this comprehensive picture of the resurrection. But. uh, For Matthew. I would say this. In his account. All that he's been telling us. Everything that we've read. Everything that we've seen in Matthew's gospel. Has been to declare the kingship of Jesus. And to reveal it to. The the people of Israel and to us. And I would say this. uh, That his account of. The resurrection's no different. I mean, he leaves things out and he includes certain things because he wants to drive home the kingship of Jesus. And so this morning, I'm not going to stray into the other gospel, gospels and, and try and pull from them. I want to just stick to Matthew's account. And it's simple. He, he establishes the fact of the resurrection. He, he tells us about the attitudes of the rulers of Israel towards those facts. And then he tells us about the absolute authority and power of King Jesus. And so verse 1 tells us that after after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, and so he gives us the time frame. It's it's after the Sabbath when the resurrection itself took place. The the women hadn't yet come to the tomb. The the keepers of the tomb, the guards, the Roman soldiers that were there were, were not asleep as they were paid To tell and lie. They were on duty. The Sabbath was over. And that's an interesting statement that Matthew makes because as we know and as we've seen, this gospel account is written for for the Jews that that the focused audience of Matthew's gospel was was Israel. And so when Matthew says the Sabbath was over, that's something that's profound. It's not just a simple statement. It means this, Judaism is finished. The Sabbath is something that became obsolete when Jesus was raised from the dead. Just like the temple was made obsolete when the curtain tore from top to bottom. Just like the priesthood in the line of the Levites was made obsolete when that high priest tore his robes in the presence of Jesus. Priesthood, temple, Sabbath, all finished with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know where the Sabbath comes from. On the seventh day of creation, Genesis tells us that God rested from his labors. He set apart the seventh day as a day of rest for his people Israel. But now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, our Sabbath, our rest is not found in a day. Our rest is found in a person. Our rest is found in in Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And so the resurrection, Matthew is telling us, is, is results in, in a, a completely new order of things. All things have changed. We also read that it was towards the dawn of the first day. A new day had dawned. A new day had dawned in the history of God's salvation story. His story of redemption. The first day of the week. And the early church t- turned away from that seventh day, the Sabbath day, and they turned to the first day of the week as, as a day not of rest, but as a day of worship. It's a day of worship. That's why we're here this morning. It's because of the resurrection. We're here to worship the first day of the week. And so Matthew tells us that at that time, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to, went to see the, the tomb. They were the first visitors to the tomb. They had no idea what had transpired. In that tomb where they believed Jesus' body laid, their hopes were buried. You know, their expectations were, were in that tomb with Jesus, all of their hopes, the, the love that had conquered their hearts, and they weren't expecting anything except to find Jesus in the tomb. But verse 2, two tells us, and behold, there was a great earthquake Again, this is is a change in the natural order of things. We saw this when we went through the crucifixion account that that the ground shook and the rock split. The earth mourned at the death of Jesus and it shook. But when he rose from the dead, it shook and I think it was with a sense of pleasure (laughs) and anticipation of the things that were to come because Jesus had been raised from the dead. Matthew tells us an angel of the Lord descended from heaven came, came down and rolled back the stone and sat on the stone. I love that picture. It's quite the picture. An angel of the Lord descending from heaven. And we know this. I mean you heard this so many times. He, he didn't come down to let Jesus out of the tomb. Jesus was already gone. There, he, he, he didn't need to be let out of the tomb. He had left the tomb. The angel came down to show the world the evidence of Of the resurrection and the proof of the empty tomb. And we know the story. In front of the the tomb there was the guard of soldiers. The governor's insignia was sealing the tomb. And that angel came down with no consideration of the Jewish religious leaders. No consideration of the authority of Rome. He just rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And just let Jerusalem try and stop him. Just let Rome and all of Caesar's might try and stop the angel of the Lord as he comes to the tomb. Isn't it a great picture? This is the angel of the Lord. He's he's not concerned about the displeasure of the Sanhedrin. He's not concerned about the might of Rome or Caesar. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 19 how one angel of the Lord slew 185,000 of the Assyrian army. Who is Caesar? What is his seal? Who is the Sanhedrin? What is Jerusalem or what is Rome when it comes to one who comes from the presence of God? See we have to understand this. That no power on earth could roll that stone back in place. No power on earth could roll that stone uh, from the front of the tomb without the permission of Rome. But that stone was rolled back not by earthly power, it was rolled back by heavenly power. Not earthly might. And now with the angel sitting there, there's no earthly power that can roll the stone back in place. What are you going to do? The angel is sitting there. I mean, you think about the resurrection account and maybe you just ask this question, Well, why didn't the, why didn't the soldiers just roll the stone back in place and just you know, cover up that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. I mean, if you think about it, that's like probably one of the best ways to refute the claims of Christianity that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Just roll the stone back in place. Like just put it back and reseal and no one would really know. I mean, it's, it's before the dawn of the first day. And maybe they would have, except for the fact that an angel of the Lord was sitting on the stone. Matthew even tells us about his appearance. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is intense, you know. Think about these gospel accounts. Sometimes we're just so familiar with them. This is intense, what's going on here. The countenance of the angel was like lightning. I, I wonder when he came down from heaven, was just a lightning strike on the earth? His clothing was white as snow. The angel was clothed in blinding glory. I mean, this was a creature that was bathed in the glory of unapproachable light. he had come from the presence of God. That's how he appeared to those who saw him. And and the guards, this guard of soldiers, we don't know how many there were, like they say a guard, some say a guard's kind of like four to 16, others say it's 50 soldiers. But this guard of soldiers who were guarding there at the tomb trembled the the earth shook and their hearts shook at the presence of the angel to the point that they fell down to the to the ground and played like dead men you know line you know nobody moves nobody gets hurt i wonder if the angel said that nobody moves nobody gets hurt <laughs> i think that's where it originated right there at the tomb but you know Just like a man who's instructed to play dead, you know, when you meet a bear or something like that. These men drop to the ground and it's like they're just playing possum. It's like, don't move. Don't look up. Head to the ground. Just pretend that we're dead. And here's the thing about that. I mean, this is what we have to understand. that These are battle-hardened, elite, veteran soldiers. They've been stationed in Jerusalem because these men have a certain skill set that's valuable to Rome. That's valuable in a place like Jerusalem. They, they know how to handle those who resist the will of Rome. And now in the presence of the angel of the Lord. They're playing dead. Like possum. And you have to love the irony of God. right? And, and, and how he works. Because the soldiers are imitating possum and it's two women that are there that come upon the scene that that the angel begins to speak to. I just love that, you know. I was thinking about the moms today and just how the resurrection account just like it's like the first to discover was a mom. You know, was this lady Mary Magdalene and this uh, this other Mary. And and here they are the, the and the women that angel uh, speaks to them words of comfort. He says this, don't, don't be afraid. He said to them, don't be afraid, for, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And you think about that countenance of the angel, appearance of lightning, white as, white as snow. I mean, he was just as terrifying to the women as he was to the soldiers. And that angel, it seems, could sense their fear but then he disarmed it with words of comfort. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know that you've come to seek Jesus who, has been cruci- who was crucified. And then verse 6, the angel says this, He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Just simple words. Simple truths. He's not here. I know that you've come seeking him, but he's not here. He's risen. You you came to see the tomb. Well, come on. Let's have a look. Let's go in there. I hate to disappoint you, but there's nothing to see. Let's go in and have a look. I'm sure he was smiling. He welcomed them to draw near with him and to look into that empty tomb. And notice what the angel says. He says this, come and see And then go and tell. Come and see. Come and look at the empty tomb. And then go and tell his disciples. The first witnesses to the resurrection were two faithful women. That that empty tomb became the cornerstone of everything. we. It is the cornerstone of everything that we believe. The cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone of. The apostles preaching in that first century. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, small and great, come and see the empty tomb. Paul preached the resurrection on Mars Hill to the Greeks. Paul preached the resurrection to King Agrippa. Peter preached the resurrection by the power of of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And 3,000 were saved. Paul declared to the Roman church in in his letter that verse that we know so well in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10. That if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed with your mouth, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The angel's announcement. Come and see there's light in the darkness there's hope for the hopeless there's life from the dead that's the essence of the gospel there's hope there's there's light there's a promise of new life because Jesus loves us and died on the cross for us and though he was buried God raised him from the dead and the bold preaching of that early church and the apostles as they proclaim uh, life in Christ through faith in his death and resurrection, it shook the world and it's continuing to shake the world. The gospel is shaking the world by no doubt. that We're saved by his grace. We were dead in our sin. We were shackled in the chains of sin. Alone and helpless and condemned and in darkness, but we have been raised with Christ. Made alive forever, made righteous, redeemed and brought back with the riches of his amazing grace, with the riches of his relentless love for us, purchased with blood and saved by grace. Look what that empty tomb declares to us, church. Come and see. And go and tell. You, know, you think about those who are in that place of unbelief. Maybe they've just hardened their heart in the place of unbelief. You know, when you, when you meet people like that, it's like the empty tomb is a source of anger for them. The declaration of the empty tomb, like, makes them rage. The enemies of Christ make up theories that are weak and shaky to account for what happened to Jesus. You know, I often think this the sad reality is is that that many people remain unbelieving, not because they cannot believe. I mean, the proof for the resurrection is overwhelming. It's not because they cannot believe, but because they refuse to believe. They refuse, they love darkness rather than light. And nowhere is that more evident as when we get to this part about the religious leaders, as we see their response. We'll get there in a few minutes, but before we get there, let's keep cruising, because it says this, and behold, the angel said, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So the angel commanded these two ladies, Go and tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he will go before you as he said and he'll meet you in Galilee. And we know Galilee and it, it was the place where everything began for those who followed Jesus for these, twi- for these 11. That's where Jesus grew up. That's where the disciples met him. That's where he did most of his miracles. That's where his greatest messages were taught. Jesus said, I'll meet you in Galilee the disciples were a mess. I mean I don't know what else you say about these guys. One of the 12 was dead. Peter was still I think overcome with his own betrayal and denial of Jesus. They were a group that was confused and they were afraid. But Jesus is going to forge these men into the nucleus of the early church that's going to shake shake the world. He's going to forge them into the center of the church, the foundation of the church that's about to be born. And so I imagine these ladies half shocked, half rejoicing, begin to rush off to share what they have seen and heard. They're probably still battling their fears. They're still probably confused, though overwhelmed with joy. And that's when the Lord himself appeared to them. They met King Jesus himself. Check out verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there you will see me. And Jesus met them. Our English translation says that he said to them, greetings. But what Jesus said to them is actually kind of somewhat lost in translation from the original language into English. Greetings means this. Rejoice. He saw them and he said, rejoice. Rejoice. That's what he said. Can you imagine? Rejoice. Overwhelmed with maybe confusion There's some fear still going on, overwhelmed with joy. He says to them, rejoice and instantaneously they recognize Jesus. They bow before him. With their eyes as they take hold of his feet, with their eyes they see his nail scarred feet. With their hands they touch the nail scarred feet and they worship him. They felt the reality of his resurrection. They felt the reality of his resurrection body and they worshipped him. And you know, I just think that, that's what an encounter with the resurrected Lord should lead to, worship. I mean, when, when you go to the empty tomb, when you, when you get a picture in your heart or in your mind of the resurrected Lord, it will lead you to worship him. The words of the angel were true to them. Their ears hadn't deceived them. Their eyes saw the empty tomb, their eyes didn't mislead them, and now their hearts knew. the resurrection was gloriously, I don't know, wonderfully, astoundingly, it was true. And so Jesus said to them, "Don't, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." That's actually the first time that Jesus calls the disciples, his brothers like officially. That's grace. That's the grace of his death and resurrection. Tell my brothers, go to Galilee, and there they're gonna see me. And so fears dispelled, the two women went to tell the disciples all that they had seen and heard. And check out what happens in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. So the women, you know, fears are dispelled and they go to report to the disciples. The soldiers, fears are not dispelled because now their life is on the line. So from the tomb, they went into the city to report to the chief priests all that had taken place. You won't believe what happened. The earth shook. You know, we saw an angel, the stone was rolled back. The body of Jesus was gone. The angel sitting on this. I mean, we had to play dead just to get out of there with our lives. And so we imagine just the state of the Jewish religious leaders, just confusion. And so it says in verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. The solution, the solution of the religious leaders, here's a bribe. Here's some money. The soldiers had new BMWs the next day. Here's some money to cover it up. We want you to say that you were sleeping and that his disciples came by night and they stole the body. Now just, I mean, just a little bit of logic. Think about this. First of all, if they were sleeping... How did they know the disciples came and stole the body? I, I mean, how, how do you even know? I mean, besides that, they were soldiers. As we know, for a Roman soldier to sleep while he was on duty, that was a capital offense. Romans will remove your head from your shoulders for that. So if the story was true, if the story was true that the body had been stolen while they were sleeping, I'll tell you who would have been the first people to deny that. The soldiers. They would have rolled that stone back. They they would have done everything they could to preserve their lives. Here's something else to consider. If the disciples stole the body, let's just say they did. If the disciples stole the body, why didn't the Sanhedrin arrest the disciples? If the disciples stole the body, why didn't the Romans arrest the disciples? Produce the body. Uh, convict those disciples of tampering with the governor's seal. Convict those disciples of grave robbing. I mean any of those would have put a quick end to this report of the resurrection. The best the religious leaders could do was this. Was to create a you know, propaganda machine. With money. If we repeat the lie often enough, you know, people will believe it. Just tell them you were sleeping, and somebody came, the disciples came, they stole the body, and we'll, we'll kind of help you cover it up. And so we'll satisfy the governor with this. But I mean, when we think about it, I mean logically, what they, what they dreamt up, what they concocted, is like, it doesn't stand up to just a few questions, some logical people, 2,000 years later I think we're logical uh, because Jesus is alive. Because the tomb is empty. It can't be denied. It can't be denied. But we read in verse 15 they they took the money and they did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I mean there's people who still believe that lie. That the disciples stole a a body. You know I think you could go to lots of universities in in, in our country and all around the world and there are intellectual people who will stand in front of classrooms and they'll parrot the old lie that the disciples stole the body. Really? Think about it. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew his brother was crucified. Paul, who got saved and was added to the the 11 to be the 12th apostle, Paul was crucified The other nine except for John were all martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. For preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thomas had his brains beat out with a club. James was killed with a sword. Philip was crucified. Matthew was stabbed to death. James the son of Alphaeus he was stoned. Bartholomew he was beheaded. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, they were both crucified. The disciples died violent deaths. Some of them saw their families tortured and killed because they continued and would not stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I, 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 tell, you, I tell you this because I don't have enough faith. To believe that the 11 plus Paul suffered in the way that they did for a message that wasn't true that they didn't believe that they weren't witnesses of. They didn't suffer the way that they did for a lie. John might have been the only one to die of old age and natural causes but did you know that John was still boiled in oil? I mean, if the resurrection was a lie, someone would have cracked. And that's why with utter confidence, we can say, you know, to those who don't believe in the resurrection, just tell me what they did with the body of Jesus. Just tell me. Like, just give me some proof what they did with the body of Jesus Christ. And you know, when you consider these things, one of the things that I love about our relationship with Jesus it's, it's a relationship that's based on faith, but I'll tell you this, it's not blind. I, I never have had to turn off my mind to follow Jesus. The evidence is all there, and the resurrection verifies and substantiates and confirms and supports and proves that Jesus is who He claimed to be. And so we read on in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him they worshipped but some doubted. I think this is probably the time, I mean just a little bit of guesswork here but I think this is probably the time that Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when there were 500 witnesses to his resurrection and he taught them. And it's amazing as you read this that, that some worshipped and some doubted. You think, well, how, how could that possibly be the case? But you know that happens here every Sunday. There are some that worship, and there are others who are always struggling with doubt, wrestling with doubt. It's always the reality when we come to the presence of Jesus. Jesus, there's just there's worship and there's doubt. It comes with the experience of His presence that in his presence will we'll worship and there will be those who doubt. And then to verse 18, these famous verses that you, you know well. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew tells us just the simple facts about the resurrection. He tells us about the response of those who were unbelieving, the religious leaders. And now he begins to tell us about the authority and power of Jesus. He says that Jesus said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now the word that's translated in our Bible's authority is is the Greek word exousia. And it it refers to authority or delegated power along with the right to use it. We we say in English, authority has been given to Jesus. But here's the deal. We lose in translation a, a sense of what the original language expresses. Truly in its, its proper context, you could say authority or you could say power, but that, those words do not grasp what Jesus is saying. The idea is this. Jesus says, all the right of absolute authority and all the resources of absolute power they've been given to me. Absolute authority and absolute power. You think about that for a moment. The absolute power and absolute authority of heaven has been given to Jesus. What does that encompass? I mean, I don't know. My little mind just can't take that in. Cherubim, seraphim, thrones, dominions, Powers, the angels, the ministering spirits sent to serve the heirs of salvation. The local church. The unseen world and the unseen realm. Satan's hordes that battle against him. Principalities and powers. Fallen angels and demons, Satan himself. All held in check by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like he says to the oceans, there will be your boundary and you will go no further. So he says to those powers and principalities, no matter what the enemy does, what he does to nations, whatever he does to lead people into temptation to sin, whatever he does to hinder the work of the Lord Jesus, Whatever might happen in all of the unseen realm, whatever it is, it bows to a name. Do you know that? It bows to the name of King Jesus. Because he has, he alone has absolute authority and power. But get this Jesus said it's not just the absolute authority and power of heaven. It's the absolute power and authority of earth that has been given to me. Nations come and they go. Empires rise and fall. Generations, man, one is born and another is passing away. They come and they go. They appear and they vanish. And nothing happens outside the permissive will of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know I think about that and I just think man I'm so limited in my understanding of Jesus. I'm so limited in my understanding of the heavens and of this physical earthly world in which we live. I look around the world and I think what the heck is going on? I shake my head you know. I wonder what's going on in some nations and in some wars and in some governments and with some leaders. What is going on in this world? Sometimes I look around and I think, it sure feels like the enemy's winning. Is the enemy winning? I look around, there's things I can't explain. There's things I don't understand. Why this happens? Why the Lord Jesus lets this happen? Why he doesn't stop it with his authority and with his power? I mean, as we studied this passage and as I just talk about it with you this morning, I just think there's so many things I don't know that we don't know. But church, this we know. This we know, that there is no power but the power of God. And God's power, all of his power, belongs to a man, the man who was crucified and raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. King Jesus I mean, when we call him King Jesus, it's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is all we know. This is all I know that King Jesus has absolute authority and he has absolute power and he's sitting on his throne and of all the things I don't know, this I know, that Jesus brought this man back to life. That he brought you back to life. That he's the light of our lives. That he's like a river in a dry land in our lives. That he's like a flicker of light to the blind man. He is the Lord that shines in the midst of darkness, the risen Christ who brought us back to life and purchased us with the power of his blood. Amen. And look what he says he told his disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So here's the plan. Here's the vision. Here's my vision for you, my disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, over the years, you know, sometimes I've looked at that word go and all of us, we've heard it preached so many times. It's like one syllable, two letters, a G and an O. And yet it seems big. It seems daunting. It seems like I've got to pack up my whole life and maybe go around the world preaching and sharing Jesus and doing evangelism. And, and that might be the case for some of you. God might, might call you to go around the world to do those various things. But, but the reality is actually this, that this is actually a very down-to-earth commandment from Jesus. In, in this verse, the word go is a participle, which, which means in the original language, it, it infers that there's a suffix on the end of go, an ing, going. Literally, it's this, as you are going, As you are going, in other words, as you are going to the grocery store. As you are going to work. As you are going to school. Wherever you are going, share the gospel. This is not, that's okay. I laugh too, Dorota. (laughs) This is not inferring that you have to go around the world. Though God may call you to some foreign place for his name and for his glory. This is inferring that everywhere you go, you are to share Christ. Share the death and resurrection of Jesus and the hope and the light and the life that you've experienced because of Jesus. You know, I just feel like increasingly in North America and Canada that we live in this culture of shame. Everybody's shaming you about everything. You know, just conforming you into the little box. You fit here and don't don't step outside of these boundaries. Conforming us into the mold of this world. I so love that message that Abraham preached last week. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This morning, God is renewing our minds with his gospel, he's getting us back on track. The world uses shame to conform us into its mold. Sometimes there's, there seems to be this, this shameful sense from the unbelieving world that you don't have the right, you don't have the right to tell me about Jesus. You don't have the right to go to this people. You don't have the right to go to this foreign land. You don't have the right to speak up about Jesus in this community. You don't have the right to talk about Jesus. I don't want to hear I don't want to hear about the church taking the gospel to other lands or what the gospel is doing in the world. But I want to tell you this morning, or I believe the Holy Spirit wants to tell you this morning, you have the right. In fact, you have a mandate. You have a mandate that transcends all human, political, religious, economic power in all of this world because you are commissioned by the one who has absolute power and absolute authority. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to his name and confess that he is Lord. He's King Jesus. And we're commissioned, go. Wherever you go. Wherever you're going. And that word therefore in there is is really valuable. You should circle it. Because the word therefore links Christ's absolute power and authority to us. We've been given authority to invade the gospel. To invade this world with the gospel everywhere. It's why there's the, the biggest, baddest Army on the face of this earth is God's people, his church. The foundation and pillar of truth, Paul said. I I think about this and think, oh, God, forgive me. I just get so fearful. I get so worried about what people think. I can't think about this. I think about this. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, and you've told us, go, who is man? Why, am I, why do I fear? And Jesus said this. He says, as you go and proclaim the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's kind of cool that Jesus didn't say this. Baptize them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, baptize them in the name. One name. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great picture of the Trinity. And then Jesus gives what I believe is the greatest promise in the entire scriptures. He said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the very end of the age. He said, as you go, as you go with my authority and with my power, know this. I'm with you. My presence is with you. My spirit is with you. Therefore, I mean, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? You know, this is the word, this is the word of God to us. This is the gospel truth on which we stand. Christ died for our sins. He he met death in the grave and he rose to life again and by that, we're saved, man, by faith and, and that work and all that he did for us. It's incredible, church. It's incredible what Christ has given us. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fear. But know that that authority and power has been given to you. You know, when men scoff at the resurrection, you can laugh. Just produce the body, say. Just show me where it is.